Hello, everyone. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Great. Okay. I'm pretty loud anyway, so I don't even know if a mic is necessary. But um, I'm going to introduce our uh, esteemed panelists. Um, and then we're going to sort of launch into a conversation. Uh, there are no presentations prepared, and we're hoping that you all get involved. Um, I have prepared some questions, but my goal is that I don't have to ask any of them, uh, and that you all will do my job for me. Uh, so hopefully, uh, we'll start off, we'll talk about things. If we're sufficiently controversial, you can all jump in and uh, rebut, or add comment, or ask a question. I really want this to be uh, an open conversation, and not just sort of us blabbering at you. Um, well, before we start with that, um, you all have sat exactly in my in the order that I wrote this down, so this is great. Um, we have Drake Bear, who's a strategy reporter for Business Insider, uh, and that's a section that encompasses everything from military strategy to the workplace, which I think is really interesting. Um, he's also the co-author of Everything Connects, which is a book about minds and innovation, and I was reading through the uh, Amazon reviews of that book, and I somebody quoted from the book that I thought was actually really interesting, and I'm going to read that quote to you. It's, although it is hubris to think that one has complete control over one's experience, it is martyrdom to think one has none. Uh, and I think that's sort of an interesting uh, quote. Did you write that? I don't know. I wrote that. <laughs> yeah, you're <laughs> author of the book. You remember that line? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and then uh, next to him, we have Abhinav Gupta, who's an assistant research professor at the Robotics Institute at Carnegie Mellon University. And he works on vision and how we see things and how we make meaning out of those things. Um, and also works on a project called Neil, which is the never-ending image learner. It's a computer program that runs 24 hours a day, seven days a week, right now probably, trolling the internet for images and making connections between those images and trying to learn what they are. Um, uh, some interesting stats about Neil. Right now, Neil currently knows 2,702 concepts, 2,201,402, a lot, two over 2 million <laughs> images, and can make uh, over 4,000 visual relationships, things like a deer looks kind of like an antelope, and a car can have a part that is a wheel, so this is a computer that is learning these things. Um, and then at the far end there in, in Google Glass, as we were discussing earlier, is uh, Robert Chukai, who's the head of advanced product innovation at Thomson Reuters, which, as he said, is just anything with a screen, he innovates it. Uh, and so we're going to talk with him about uh, uses for computers and devices that we carry around and interact with every day. Um, so with that, uh, we're going to talk about creativity, both in the human brain, in the computer, how those things are similar, how those things are different, how they are in some ways converging and diverging, uh, and also what that means for the workplace, for the economy, for science and technology, and how we can learn about those things uh, using both humans and machines. Um, so my questions. If anyone wants to jump in at any point, just raise your hand and we will run a mic to you. Please wait for you to get the microphone so before you ask your question because we are recording and so otherwise you'll just hear and then an answer. Um, so if you could wait for the microphone, that would be great. Um, but again, raise your hand early and often, like voting. Um, so we often compare uh, and, and make an analogy between the human brain and a computer. Um, and, and that is an analogy that sort of works in some ways and doesn't work in other ways. Um, and I mean, I hear metaphors like, how much bandwidth do you have to do this project right now? Or uh, does not compute is something that people will sort of say as a joke. But I'm curious from, both well, all of you have sort of different perspectives on this. Uh, and I'm wondering if we can start off with talking about how the human brain is and isn't like a computer and why that's important to, to consider. Well, oh. hi, I'm Drake. Um, <clears throat> so. The thing is, is that we've been comparing our mind to the like coolest technology since forever. Like Plato compared the mind to a clay tablet. Uh, Chomsky, when he was writing uh, his like 
incredible linguistic stuff that I don't really comprehend, um, compared the mind to a telephone switchboard because that was the most uh, advanced popular form of technology. And so I think it's really useful to, to be aware of the metaphors we use and to know where they come from. Um, the computational metaphor comes from the cognitive revolution that happened in psychology in the 50s and 60s at Harvard, Carnegie Mellon, MIT. Um, but there are advances in psychology right now concerning embodied cognition that reveal how it's not this computational brain up here and then this profane body that takes you from meeting to meeting. Um, your body is actually involved in your, your thinking. Okay. Um, so before I answer anything, I think the first thing I should say, no one knows what human brain does. I think if I, if I would claim anything about human brain, I would be the stupidest person to do, to do that. Uh, um, because I have been uh, trying to talk with neuroscientists because, so for example, you mentioned Neil, uh, the pro project we are doing. We thought it's something what human brain would do because how would human brain learn common sense? I would see lots of time chairs, and every time I will see chairs, I will see them on the ground. I will say, okay, maybe chairs are found on the ground, and that's one of the common sense. I will throw ball up. Every time I throw the ball, ball up, it comes down. Say, so, yeah, maybe when I throw the ball up, it comes down. That is something which I should learn. And so you keep seeing things again and again and again, and you kind of feed them into your memory, and you think that uh, that is something what your, how your world works. And when we made Neil, we thought that's what Neil should do. He should try to download images from the internet, um, see these boring images, which we call boring because it could be anything really, and just try to learn the associations in the data and see what kind of things happen. And so, I mean, you can somehow motivate these kind of uh, things like, um, how do human brain does, and we will try to do that exactly like it. So we'll also try to make a machine, like a robot, which will touch things, like children play Blocks World. They try to touch things, play, uh, hit things, put things in the mouth. Let me try to do that with the machine as well. A robot, which will try to do everything with a thing and try to learn how these things will work. And so I think, so there's a kind of a synergy between human, I mean, at least the way we, the research is going right now. I mean, so human brain can help us feed, create computer models. We do not know a lot about computer models because we are creating them. I mean, so there's no way, it's not like a mystery to us. Now, what we can do, and I think that's the kind of uh, interesting circle which happens now. What we can do is we can use the computer models now, which have been trained on all this data, millions of images like you were mentioning, uh, billions of uh, videos and text and everything. And so what, what we are trying to do, uh, collaborate neuroscientists, is that can we actually now, whatever models we have learned, can we now go and check back and see if human brain have similar connections. And I think that would be my way to know what is human brain doing. I mean, um, so what we have found out is like something what Neil has learned, the associations like car is, car wheels are round, cars are found on road. These kind of associations create, I mean, human brain. So we basically what we do is, uh, let me tell you the process of the, how we measure the human brain, because that is also something very uncertain. So we take humans, we put them into fMRI machines, on the fMRI machines, they basically see the images of things and uh, other, and basically they, have, they are very well cushioned, so they can sleep. That's one of the problems with measuring brain signals that people do sleep in these fMRI machines uh, while watching these images. But when they're watching these images, their brain signals, uh, so we can actually measure how much oxygen is going into each part of the brain. And that's how you measure which part of the brain must be active right now. Now using these kind of measurements, we can see, okay, if image A and image B are being said similar, because if the oxygen is going similarly in the different parts of the brain, there must be something similar across these images. We can do similar measurements from computer, whatever computer model has done. 
And then we try to measure, okay, how much similarity we can uh, have across these two things. So I think, I mean, so going back to your question, um, basically, there could be a lot of things similar because some of us actually are trying to develop models which are very similar to human brains. But um, the, the differences also lie because machines have something human, uh, superhuman when, when it comes to data. They can process lots and lots of data which humans cannot do. Uh, or at least cannot remember lots of data. Uh, there's a limit to what humans can remember. So there are both differences and similarities. I think we need to keep both in mind. And that's how I think the two will come together to make this powerful uh, synergy which, will, which can happen. So my answer is a little bit different, a little bit similar, I suppose, to, to Abhinav's. Um, our brain is sort of like the original big data Hadoop cluster, you know? And, and the way I sort of look at it is like this. You know, all the time, we're getting bombarded with stimuli. And in that stimuli, we're making judgments. Like, right now, I'm wondering whether this dude in the front row here, or second row, rather, he's going to punch me for having taken his picture and shot it up on Twitter. I'm looking at the girl back there in the striped shirt and the sunglasses, yep, you, who's sitting like this and determining whether or not her body language is saying what he's talking about is interesting, boring, or somewhere in between. I'm translating your smiles, your frowns, the weather out there, all this stuff all at once. And to Abhinav's point, you know, the human brain can't suck everything in. We can only take so much and then stuff falls out. But over the course of time, in the same way that you know, the first original computers had very, very little memory, over the course of time, I like to think that our brains are like these big data machines that have more and more memory that all this stuff is coming at us. The thing that makes it a little bit wild with, with human beings, of course, is then there's this whole emotional component, right? Who taught Eddie Van Halen how to play the guitar the way he did? He didn't really have anything to go on, right? And so there wasn't anything in the back of his brain other than he's been classically trained as a musician to somehow think, let me tap the frets on here and let me actually get a patent on the way that I play. And I think that's one of the interesting things about human beings and trying to replicate them as computer models. Computer models are really, really good at ones and zeros. Computer models are really crappy at signaling emotional components and trying to detect even intent. If I, say, if I say something to you like the word, wow, that's really sick, you know, does that mean it's disgusting or is it, you know, in, in the phrase of an 18-year-old, man, that's really cool, right? And computers aren't quite there to the point yet where they can sort of figure out intent of language and things like that, whereas we have that ability. So to me, there's still that whole emotional component that I think computers are going to have a, a really hard time catching up on. But, you know, with computing power increasing the way it is over the course of time, I'm sure we're going to get a lot closer. I'd say you could, uh, you could make the observation that the computational model for the mind is inherently sexist because it privileges the quantitative and the logical and thinks, oh, like these, this emotion stuff, that's not really useful to navigating this world. You could also argue that uh, associating women with emotion and men with logic is sexist as well. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you could, one, one could argue that. But that's what our culture does, Rose. True. I mean, it, it's totally true. I mean, yeah. being on the research side, I would say that we are just taking problems at a time. I think that's how you have to look at it. Being quantitative right now is the most important thing because that will help the, uh, in our research and applications as well. I mean, emotions, I agree that they are useful. And by the way, I should point out that there is a lot of research in emotions as well. There is. Uh, trying to have computers do emotions, trying to have human-robot interaction, basically hu robots trying to understand the intentions of actor, humans, and humans trying to understand the intentions of robots so that the two can collaborate. So if, if a robot is going like this, the human can understand really 
what robot is trying to do even before robot has done it so that you do not feel threatened by the robot. That's, I think, a very important thing. If, you're, if you have to coexist in this world, you should be able to understand robot emotions as well. I mean, uh, and I think that's what, there is some kind of research going on. But the focus is on quantitative because it seems that that is something which will help us immediately into uh, kind of applications and stuff. And emotions, I mean, there are lots of emotion, human emotion already out there. I mean, um, probably we are not so excited about human emotions at this point in time, but in the future, like uh, Bob said, Emotions are going to be part of this when we have to coexist. But in the, I mean, not right now. There's not much. So you're, you're arguing that it's more important to think quantitatively right now because it's going to benefit us more than to think emotionally? I mean, so can, you, can we think of having emotions before having common sense? Or can we think of having emotions before having models so of what the world is? When you're talking about thinking, are you right. talking about a computer or a human being? Yeah. I'm, sorry, I'm thinking of both because I have to think, I mean, computer has to think if it has to become smart. But I also have to think about the human because I have to exist with the human. I mean, unless you are thinking of robots taking over the world, which are, they are not by chance. Um, but we have to exist with humans. So we have to analyze both. Mm -hmm. We do not have to analyze only what computers are thinking. We have to analyze what humans can do as well. I mean, that's what, so there's a whole field of human-robot interaction and, 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 and basically emotive cognitive uh, science. And mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm not an expert at that at all. So there's a disclaimer I should put. Uh, if they hear this video, uh, audio, they might say, oh, this guy is. This is great. We, don't, we, we couldn't even get yeah, past one, one question, man. Two, we're already three. Let's do it that word order. Uh, I'm Aaron Shalit. Um, I would, ask, uh, would like to ask you more uh, to elaborate on the comparison between the computer and the human mind uh, as um, uh, something that takes in data and memorizes it because in my book the difference is that the human mind de is determined not only by what it takes in but its capacity to leave out stimuli mm -hmm. and data uh, and that to me is the leap between accumulative data that is necessary for knowledge, but certainly does not turn knowledge into wisdom. That's mm. based on something different. Absolutely. I'd like great. you to el elaborate on that. Yeah, I, you know what? I think that's a really good point because if you think, for example, about the education system today, what do we do? When you, know, when you have a three year old, a four year old, a five year old kid, they're at their most creative, right? Nothing is impossible at that age. And then we send them to school, and what do we do? We teach them two times two, we teach them how to read, we teach them sciences, all this stuff, and we beat the creativity out of them. And all that creativity is gone by the time they graduate from high school. And it's, and it's wrong, and it's screwed up, and it's probably one of the most fundamental things that, that's wrong in terms of how we educate our kids, because we've drummed out, to your point. We've, we've taught them all these useless things, like how many times do you really need to balance a chemical equation? Um, zero. You know, I got, an, I got two engineering degrees, and I can't tell you the last time I did except help my son do his homework. And it's a sad thing that, that that component of the education process that doesn't look at the emotional side, that looks at the arts, the appreciation of the beauty. I mean, look at this view we have out the window. How do you quantify that view? If you tried to quantify it, you'd have 150 different views or how many other people are in this room because we all see that beauty in a completely different way. Um, can I actually add on to this and make another controversial statement? I think <laughs> now that I now that I am here. So um, <laughs> um, so I agree that humans tend to throw off a lot of data. 
and they don't want to store all the data because maybe they are not good enough to store all the data. What's wrong with computers storing everything? I mean, they will still process everything. They will still make models of everything, but we don't throw, throw data because I have terabytes, even petabytes of, I mean, Google, I, mean, I don't know how much RAM or hard drive do they carry with them. So why should I throw the data? I mean, is there any benefit of me for throwing the data? I mean, I agree that we are trying to motivate ourselves from human, but we don't exactly want to be humans. I mean, computers can, I mean, why do, I mean, humans cannot store data. That's why they have to throw them. Computers can store data. There's no problem of hard drive storage in my, in my case. So, they, so I will do all the things, like I'll make all the inferences, I will make connections in, the data, in my mm -hmm. memory, but I will not throw the data. Because who knows, later on I might need to make a new connection. And if I throw the data, I will never be able to make that connection. So I keep all the data. I mean, so some things computer will be really better at, I mean, mm -hmm. compared to humans. Let's just agree. I mean, because, and I think that's what we can, I mean, so why try to be just do human? I mean, so that would be another argument for saying something like um, Kinect, for example. So humans have these two eyes. They do not have any 3D sensor really, right? But if you have to make computer understand the world, Kinect has structured lighting which will basically have 3D, it's kind of a 3D sensor. It will understand the 3D uh, of the room, like depth and everything. Now again, humans don't have that kind of a sensor, but computers can have that sensor. So why make, why restrict myself to humans if I can do something better out there? That's one of the philosophy. Uh, I'm not saying I, that's my philosophy. Can I, may I also interject? Yeah. If, if I think if we're going to have a tidy argument, um, the reformed philosopher in me wants to say that we need to make epistemological distinctions. So is there a difference between data and information? Is there a difference between information and knowledge? And is there a difference between wisdom and all of these things? Because I think once we can kind of get a taxonomy of, uh, of what it is to know something, then we can get a little more tidy and perhaps less rivalrous about like, oh, this should be on team iPhone. This should be on team Drake. I'm on team Drake. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, so you have the mic, and then back there in the purplish shirt, and then to your left. Um, so, you know, I, I heard you guys making a big contrast between emotions and analysis. And, but uh, would you like to comment on that? To make decisions, you can get analysis paralysis, and emotion is critical to at least human deci decision-making and taking actions, and you can't really separate them because yeah. without emotions, we're unlikely to make yeah. any act at all. Yeah. So, Go for it, man. Yeah, yeah um, you start, I, man. I think uh, what you're referencing is the, the really incredible work of Antonio Damasio, who's a USC uh, neuroscientist. And he had a patient um, who had, like, my neuroscience is um, not developed. Um, but he lost this emotional center in his brain. And so, like, before, before the accident, he was like a, a, a stand-up guy, super successful lawyer, had a really happy marriage, and was a wonderful father. Then he had this accident, no longer had emotional processing, and divorce, lost his job. Essentially, his life was ruined, because he could no longer, um, I'm going to use the computational language, he could no longer process emotions. And so Damasio would be like, well, when should we have our next appointment? And he would say, well, we could do it on Tuesday or we could do it on Wednesday. If we do it on Tuesday, well, I have this thing going on and that thing going on, and oh, there's all these factors for Tuesday. But on Wednesday, there's this and that and this and that. And also, if you asked him which restaurant we should go to, he would say, well, this one has a lot of people in it, so we might need to wait. This one doesn't have anyone in it. So we'd get there really early. But if no one's in there, then it might not be a good restaurant. So it was 
essentially impossible for this guy to make the most simple of decisions. And one of Damasio's conclusions is that emotion acts as a sort of um, accelerator for decision-making. And if you're, ju- if you're just um, weighing data as a human without emotional capability, you can't create insight. You can't move towards it. Um, and there's actually a great YouTube video of an earlier Aspen Ideas Festival <laughs> with Damasio talking about this. And he says that wisdom is the accumulation of your ability to project yourself into a situation and feel how, how you would emotionally respond to it. I'm on board with that. You know, to me, you can't separate the two, right? I mean, think about the first time you met your significant other, right? So in the years that ran up to that, you had no idea this other person existed. And then you see that person, and something hits you in your gut, right? And that's what, and that's what we talk about. And you, you can't live in this world of you know, the, the paralysis of analysis. Because guess what? With every decision, we live with incomplete data. If you wait for all the facts to come in, you're screwed, right? So you have to make a call at some point. And that's, I think, what's, what's fascinating today about the startup space and the entrepreneurs that we see all around the world. They're making decisions left, right, and center based on completely inaccurate data, wrong data, insufficient data. And you know what? They still succeed anyway. Life goes on. And if they fail, they fail. So what? Move on, right? That's the way it is. Can't separate the two. Yeah. So thanks for this fascinating uh, discussion. So I talk to a lot of computer scientists, and I I study um, artificial intelligence as closely as I can. And you're talking about it very differently than the way that I'm used to. Most people talk about something being domain-specific or general. And so it's not like it's difficult for computers to figure out emotions if that's all it is that they're, that they're training on, right? I mean, we do that at the borders now. We're experimenting with that. Even in big box stores, we're experimenting with figuring out, is this customer pissed off? Or, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it's, not that human, it's not that computers can't handle demo- emotions. It's they can't handle everything, Correct. right? And so the dream of artificial intelligence, as you well know, that, that term was coined in the, in the 1950s, at Dartmouth College, actually. Um, and, and, and people thought, we're going to make this general purpose thing that you know, it can do anything a person can do. And then they realized, oh, gosh, and we can't. And then there was this AI winter. You, you know the story, of course, I'm telling. I'm just wondering, why, why are you sort of walking away from that frame of, I mean, just to, you're, you asked, made a statement about computers can't tell intent. That's not, that's not true, right? So, I mean, in, in Microsoft Research, there's this lovely algorithm that can figure out whether you're intending to walk towards you know, you, you know Eric's work, right, on this, yeah, and like, yeah, intending yeah. to walk. To, that's that's measuring intent, intending to whether you're walking walking towards the um, the elevator, right? So I'm, I guess I'm just curious whether a, a bunch of, of really smart, cutting edge people like you, whether you've abandoned this as the way of talking about it, or you're doing it for for a different reason, and so forth. And and and, and, and I apologize if I missed a sort of uh, uh, discussion about this a little earlier. But anyway, fascinating, but different from the way I'm used to hear people talking about this. Okay, um, should I go? Yeah, go for it. Okay. Um, so I agree. I mean, so I was actually going to answer your question as well a little bit, but then it moved on, and I said, okay, fine. So um, even though I mean, so if you're doing a general-purpose machine, then I agree that you have to do emotion separately because now you have the same machine, the same algorithm has to work everywhere, and that becomes a problem. Now, what emotions right now? The way artificial intelligence people are mo- modeling emotions is like in context, and that's what context is like domain. I mean, domain defines your context um, in in some sense. So, for example. Um, if the context says that this person has been crying, 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 you already, now, now you will apply a model which was only learned based on when people were crying in the past. So now, in fact, I'm not doing any emotions. 
but I still have a model which can actually work in this emotion. So the way people would do it is basically it's very domain dependent, I mean, mixture model kind of thing. Basically, you have multiple models for multiple scenarios. And you apply, you get the context from what hum, where, where human is right now, and you apply that context. Now, going to your question of the domain dependent thing, so I, I think, I mean, at least I, I agree that, um, I think what Bob meant when he was saying that humans cannot do intentions is be, in a general purpose you cannot do intentions for sure. I mean, there's just no way in a general purpose you can do it. But again, in a domain dependent, when the context is known, when things are actually very well defined, you can do context because the, uh, the amount of possibilities are very, very less. And that's where you actually, you can go through all the possibilities, you can check all the, you can kind of do even matching with the past and see, okay, what kind of things people have done in the past and I will just use those matching techniques. general-purpose computing, because some of the roboticists I talk to, like folks out of Japan, they're interested in, let's talk about this again, right? And I wonder where you guys are on no, this. No, so I think, I mean, I think, the, at least from the academia viewpoint, we are, I mean, there are both, people are doing both things in parallel. There are people who are doing very applied research, which is very domain-dependent, which will, which is kind of trying to go into some product in the next few, two to, two to three-year timeline, even five, maybe five-year timeline. And then there are people who are still worried about this whole general purpose thing, trying to match more with the human brain. And so like, for example, this Neil project, I mean, it's a very, I mean, if I have to say, it's not going to come out and be useful in like two years, three years timeline. It's a very long term project. We are still starting to understand what kind of common sense. So this is more like a general purpose AI thing where we are trying to match human brain. We are trying to ma make this machine which is going to work in every scenario uh, outright. So I think both are happening in parallel. Um, and I think that's how research should be. Everything should happen. I mean, so that we need to create some products. Otherwise, there's no funding and there's no way we can actually survive. And I mean, if we don't make any product, if we keep doing this 1950, that's why the AI winter came because there was, uh, we kept on talking about this general purpose thing, but we never actually made anything concrete and useful. So now I think we have actually understood the right cycle that you do both things in parallel. And hopefully, at some point of time, this general purpose will be so powerful that it can actually replace this domain-specific things. Yeah, part of the reason why I guess I'm being, I'm trying to be pr provocative about it is I don't believe there is a one-size-fits-all machine to do this. It is so contextually dependent because when you're sitting in a room with somebody, and we have this phrase, Minnesota nice. Have you ever heard of that? Okay, so let me tell you what Minnesota nice is. So you sit in a room, and your computer's sitting there learning while you have somebody tell you, that's really a great idea, and I'm, I'm right behind you, and I'm going to support you. And your computer's going, yep, he's really, really behind you. And guess what? The minute you walk out of that room, what do they do? knife in the back, backbiting behind you, and your computer, which sat there learning that algorithm, can't understand Minnesota nice, can't understand the nuance of language, facial expression, culture. It's the same thing when I lived in England, England for almost eight years. And if somebody tells you that something is interesting, in America, it's great. Over there, means you're an idiot, right? <laughs> and, and so, you know, we, we have to... That's why I think it's, it's going to be a huge struggle to build this great big one-size-fits-all thing because it is so context, culture, language, person-dependent. And so it's, it's a lot tougher problem. Yeah, I think so. To emphasize that, like, for example, the Watson thing, it was trying to do the Jeopardy, like a very general-purpose mm -hmm. Jeopardy. But now IBM is smart. It knows that it has this technology. It's doing specifically a Watson for healthcare. It's exactly. doing specifically a Watson for this because they know that... Uh, if they have to really get a product out, it can, cannot even have one or two questions wrong. That, yeah. that will irritate the human out there. 
So when you go domains, you, you can still create these, like it's kind of reuse of technology. I mean, you can still create general purpose things, but then you realize, okay, it's actually going to work with a higher accuracy in a very domain specific thing. And I think that's what we all are, all are doing. I mean, we are developing algorithms, we, we do our domain specific, and then they work pretty good. Okay, I've seen a bunch of hands go up and then sort of creep back down. So I know there was someone there. We have a woman in the back, and then you had your hand up as well. Let's just sort of move the microphone forward slowly. Uh, someone has it back there, though, yes. My students struggle with the how individuals and societies arrive at moral and ethical frameworks. It's a theory of knowledge class, high school. I'm wondering, is this a consideration when developing this general computer? Wow, that's a great question. Yeah, I think it has to be, right? Because what's, what's okay in one country isn't in another. And take a look at a place like Saudi Arabia, where they think it's okay for girls not to be educated, to have to wear you know, a full burqa, hat can't go out of the home without a, um, without a male escort. In that society, that's the way it is. We look at that in, in a Western nation in shock and horror, right? So moral, morals are ridiculously different everywhere. And that's another component to this, to this problem that you described. Um, I think that nestled within that point is the fact that, not the fact, um, I would posit that you can't have intelligence, functional intelligence exist in a vacuum, right? Mm -hmm. As you were saying, the thing, the Minnesotan and the Londoner will be really nice to each other, but horrid in different ways, right? right? And so, like, the, the functional intelligence, again, in London versus in Saudi Arabia will be very different. And so that brings deeper questions of, so, okay, what is intelligence? Like, if a plant can navigate towards the sun and survive in that way, is that plant intelligence? Plants don't even have brains, let alone computers. Um, so there's just, I think there's, it's like the... You know, there's those awesome Russian nesting dolls. I think it's really important when we have these yeah. discussions to see, well, what's the question within this question? Could you uh, expand upon the evolution of Watson? Uh, you made some reference to it being um, uh, less general and more specific or more domain-based. How do you expect Watson to evolve? And I guess IBM's making a pretty big bet a company on this transition? How does this uh, evolve? Um, my knowledge, I'm, I'm definitely not part of IBM, so I have not much information. I mean, my only information pertains to some of the talks I have seen, and so I will, uh, so my understanding is that when Watson was learned, I mean, basically Watson is nothing but a big knowledge base. They have, when you ask a question in Jeopardy, uh, it maps uh, the question onto this knowledge base, like what question is being asked, and then it basically th generates multiple answers. Now, if you think of uh, knowledge, I mean, so what? So when um, Watson was trying to, Watson was kind of learned on, you would think, Wikipedia pages, so that it can answer questions about Jeopardy questions. Now, if you think, if you remove Wikipedia pages and you just look into medical things, uh, like how people have been treated in the past, and that's what it learns on. It doesn't learn on, it's not going to learn on things like who invented the first car or who invented the plane or things like that. It's not useful in the healthcare domain. I mean, who cares about that? Uh, so in, in a very restricted domain, if you learn, you will big, build up a, this big knowledge base, which is just con consisting of symptoms mapping to 
like what kind of treatment or basically th things like that. And now basically once you have learned this big knowledge base which is just healthcare, you can ask questions related to healthcare and it can retrieve the answers or important examples in the past. That's what my understanding is they are trying to do. But I think this was announced very recently, like 2013 or later half. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's that's the way. For example, Nuance is building a lot of their speech recognition engines now. They they tailor them around medical or legal or, or whatever, so that you know when you say subdural hematoma, which I don't know what the heck it is, but it picks it up very very quickly, much much faster than if you were to just it is exactly. Yeah, so yeah. I think I mean yeah. ju just to see why it would be useful is because um, so if one of the questions for Watson was asked was about some American city and it answered Toronto which is, I mean, so all of us know Toronto is not an American city. And, um, now, if it, Watson's knowledge was just based on American cities, then it would definitely answer American city, right? I mean, that's how it is. Basically, the more data you have, the more possibilities of answer it would have. And that's why you're never sure. So now, with very strict data, that's what my feeling is. In a very restricted data sense, it will have much more concrete answers and much more beneficial answers. And I mean, I mean, it makes sense. Why do have health, uh, other knowledge base con integrating with the Healthcare knowledge base, for example. Wait, so can we, sorry, can we move to the back there with the question back there? Okay, perfect. Thank you. I was being. There's right there behind you, behind you, behind you. I was being so uncomfortable. All right, very good. Well, um, so my name is Guru Banavar. I'm a, a VP of Cognitive Computing and IBM Research, where we built uh, the first generation of Watson, and we're now doing the next few generations of it. So, um, you're, you're, you're more or less right, but let me, let me just add a few things here. Uh, the, the, um, the Jeopardy Watson, the Jeopardy Watson right, was very good at answering factoid questions. Um, it turns out that you know, uh, there is a Jeopardy knowledge base that you can train any computer on, any set of machine learning algorithms. So you can get um, really accurate answers for classes of questions that are likely to come up on Jeopardy. So that was the very specialized kind of training we did, even for the, it was, I would claim that Je Jeopardy Watson was actually a domain-specific okay. uh, system. It was not, it was not a general-purpose system, right? But um, just extending that to other domains, like, for example, oncology, you could, uh, we, we have right now um, trained uh, a set of machine learning algorithms in um, the entire literature for uh, a certain classes of oncology. Uh, right, you know, brain cancer or um, um, or breast cancer um, and so forth. So um, when a clinical trial is done and the results of a clinical trial is published in, let's say, PubMed or some other place like that, Watson is able to pick it up and integrate it with the rest of the, the, rest of the knowledge that it has um, and use essentially a set of machine learning algorithms that um, you know, one of which may not do very well, but when you do these ensemble kinds of learning, it can actually do pretty well because the combination of multiple machine learning algorithms can actually be much better. So you can go into oncology as another domain, and we've just started getting data from uh, the New York Genome Center to train uh, Watson in, in, in uh, glioblastoma, for, for example. Similarly, there are um, sort of retail domains like, um, you know, shopping for uh, mountaineering or something like this, which would be a very specific domain, which has lots of blogs and lots of, um, let's say, manuals for products and lots of um, you know, opinions on the web and so forth, social media information. That's all used as um, the training data set for the next generation of a retail Watson. 
So there's an oncology Watson, there's a retail Watson, there's a Jeopardy Watson, and so on and so forth. We now have, um, I would say, almost a dozen different specialized versions of Watson that, that are trying to address question answering. If you go beyond question answering, there are even more uh, interesting things, like, for example, uh, looking at, um, at x-rays and doing what a radiology would do, which is to identify whether there's a certain tumor um, uh, you know, in, in, in the next um, uh, you know, x-ray that you, you might show, show Watson. So this is a different domain than question answering. And then there's yet other domains, like, uh, uh, you know, like um, uh, interactive debates. You know, if, you, if you have a topic in which you want to find pros and cons, that's an entirely different kind of um, you know, interaction with humans, if you will, and in the kind of training that's required and so forth. So all of these are different um, styles of, uh, I would say, uh, uh, intelligent sort of behavior or in, uh, interactions with people that, that we're working on. But I think the question-answer domain itself or the question-answer style of interacting with humans itself is very specific to certain domains, and that's already expanding as well. Hope that's useful. Thank you. Uh, let's go back. There are a lot of people who have had their hands up who have not gotten to sort of on this side of the room. So let's go back to the back there. Uh, and then I see you with your hand, and I know you had a question, and you have a question, and probably people in between. So let's start back there. <laughs> I don't know if mine is a simple question or a complicated question, but obviously computers are the product or the, or the child of the human mind. And to what extent are any of these inquiries or capabilities limited by what our own very human creativity and imagination can, can posit? <laughs> I, they still are, are a subordinate of, of a higher yeah. order thinking, or a different order <laughs> thinking. I see you <laughs> I'm, I'm Go on, sure. you're building these things. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, sure, I'm sure I'm in, um, we, I'm sure we are limited definitely by human uh, creativity. I mean, that's what, I mean, that is the, it, that is it right now. I mean, and there's no way, I, I cannot see anyone saying that uh, computers are better than humans in a general sense. But in a, again, again, in a domain sense, I mean, when you go to a domain, computers can become much more powerful than, than humans in some of the domains. Uh, for example, as I said, 3D understanding, and even like, I mean, I can say something controversial, I mean, uh, Again, autonomous cars. I mean, like, I think some some estimates say that they are they are much more safer than human drivers. But it's just that you, it's there's this gap that we have to jump, and before we can actually jump it and go until to the a system fails. Hmm? Yeah, until the, I mean, of course, <laughs> if there's a, it's, West, it's Westworld. I mean, man. if there's a virus or something. Yeah. Uh, I. It's, it's certainly fascinating to think about like, what non-human intelligence or non-human creativity is like. Um, and this is the job of philosophy and science fiction, right? Um, and I think the most uh, recent, amazing, beautiful example was in the movie Hurt, which I imagine some of you saw. Um, and at the end of the movie, spoiler alert, um, Scarlett Johansson's OS character um, is talking with the resurrected Alan Watts, which I just love. Um, and they're like, oh, we just had like some non-linguistic non communication. We're going to go into this reality you can't even conceive of. Um, so I think the short answer is that it's inconceivable. Is that satisfying? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> OK. Louis, uh, can you come this way? And the man in the blue shirt, I'm sorry, I can't see anyone's name tag, so I can't say your name. Thanks. I 
I guess I saw the thing this morning with um, Andrew McAllen, I mean, uh, McAfee. McAfee, yeah, Yeah. talking about it. And it seems like everything we're talking about is the computers are answering the question, I guess, but the the topic here was supposed to be a creative machine, and I'm just wondering how close are we to getting, and is there any experiment being done, what kind, on getting the computer to answer the question, I mean, to ask the question, not answer it. It seems like everything has been on answering a question. Do you think we're getting close, or is there any chance of it ever asking the question? Yeah. I mean, I think it's already happening today, right? Um, do you use Google Now? Google Now, you know, is, it's looking at your browsing history, your location. You know, I gave away my life to Google. I don't care. You know, I, I've accepted the benefits of it, and Edward Snowden be damned. You know, people are going to know what they're going to know about me, right? That is what it is. And in a way, that computer is already asking the question of me, right? Because it's saying, is this information that I gave you what you wanted? Was it useful? You know, and once it sort of learns that pattern that, yes, I care about the St. Louis Cardinals, and yes, I care about what the USA men's soccer team is doing, and yes, I care about the Aspen weather and Apple stock price and blah, 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 you know, it's, it's training off me, right? And I think computers are asking the question. We may not necessarily recognize they're doing it to us, though. But I mean, from a creative. Oh, from a creative. I still think, yeah, I was going to say, I still think that's pretty creative. Well, one thing that we had talked about uh, in the lead up to this was sort of the question of like serendipity and things that you lose when you are being extraordinarily efficient in what you're doing, but maybe missing those meandering paths. And maybe maybe that sort of touches upon what you're asking is, you know, computers, as we've talked about, are very good at memorizing things, they're very good at repeating those things back if we train them correctly, but are they good at leading us places that we didn't know we wanted to go? And maybe that's something that we can kind of talk about. I, I hate to be like the annoying philosophy guy again. Um, it's your job on this panel, actually. Actually, I really <laughs> enjoy it. <laughs> um, but it's like, okay, what's the function of serendipity? Meaning, beauty, exploration, discovery. Um, those, I, I'm going to say that those are pretty qualitative uh, experiences and probably the things that, if I may, make us most human. Um, and so I think we have to, thanks. Um, so I think one of the things that like, say, um, relatively highly functioning millennials, uh, like Rose and I maybe, um, is, yeah, <laughs> is to, to be mindful of, okay, computer world, I'm gonna turn you off and I'm gonna go for a walk with none of the devices. And maybe I'll talk to a human who I'll see because I'm not crossing the crosswalk with my face and my phone. Um, and so it, it, it suggests questions of like, what's the function of serendipity? And also what's our relationship with these devices? If we want to have these more human-y uh, or humanistic experiences in our lives, we need to be aware, we need to be conscious or mindful um, about how much we're giving to Google. And we can still be like betrothed to Google, um, but kind of be in this like weird open relationship. Oh, he's right. I, that's, that's, that's the best way to put it because I love what Google can do for me, and I don't care what Google knows and what Apple knows. I may care a little bit about Amazon only because this guy's here, and he's here as a friend of the Amazon Foundation, Jeff Bezos, but um, I'm just doing that as a wind-up. Um, the, the serendipity component is, is so ridiculously important, right? It's why it sits on Google's homepage. I'm feeling lucky. Click, mm. right? I mean, they think enough about it that, you know, if I let Zeit you know, my favorite news magazine, which is getting sold to Flipboard, sit there and cultivate 
and get really, really good about my profile, then you know what it's also going to do? It's also going to start narrowing down my sources of information and narrowing down the places I look at. And suddenly, you know, the big universe of all these topics that I was interested in, it disappears. And then once you, once you disappear and once you don't have that means going back out and discovering something new, none of us can be as, as, as creative as we could be anymore, right? Because that's what makes us creative is the, mm-hmm. is the exposure to new and exciting things and that, oh, my God, I never thought about this in this way. You know, you see a tree and it falls over and you go, oh, that made me think of X. You know, and that's where, you know, I think when we look at the future and the evolution of um, information, and the way predictive analytics is going to impact the way we, we operate going forward. Because in predictive analytics, it's going to be able to take, and again, this is where the machine gets to come back in again. The machine's always got like a back door, no matter what. And, and the machine's back door is going to be to take this weird thing over here and that weird thing over there and marry it together and go, crunch, here's something that you probably wouldn't have known unless I had crunched that behind the scenes for you. I think there are there are a few things that machines can do probably which I mean and especially like going through these uh, like you I'm not sure exactly that's what was the phrase but trying to find these facts which uh, humans might have really hard time trying to find for example I think I'm taking your Twitter thing like the so for example um, CDC has this competition uh, where they try to use Twitter feeds to predict flu uh, epidemics. Uh-huh which is something which humans are... Like, so this is what predictive mm-hmm. analytics can do. You can try to basically just see when people are buying what kind of medicines and predict where is the flu epidemic going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing which we do, uh, we, which we found was interesting was in arts, for example, capturing the es- architecture, cap- capturing the essence of, uh, for example, Paris. I mean, what, what makes Paris look like Paris? I mean, so we found some in- interesting things which only maybe domain experts in architecture might know and not every human might know. Even though we still have an idea of what, like if I show you an image of Paris versus not Paris, you will say which one is Paris. But you will not have an idea of why I'm saying this is Paris. Uh, so for example, we found like these cast iron balconies will only occur on broad streets of Paris, not everywhere else. So this is some, some weird pattern which has happened by some chance in, in life, but I mean, maybe some kind of uh, how knowledge transferred from one human to another. But machine can find it out uh, exactly how it traveled. Machine can find out how our architecture has traveled across uh, cities and so on. And another interesting thing we found out was um, that on a randomness, I mean, so it's kind of this thing that if you pick up a random Paris image, you'll have mostly open shutters. But in a fifth district, you'll have mostly closed shutters of windows. And we were really surprised. I mean, and we thought, why is this machine saying that in fifth district it will be always closed shutter? And now, it's our hypothesis, and it, we are not sure, I mean, if someone can confirm it for us, but the fifth district is supposed to be the rich area of Paris where there are lots of vacation homes. And it just might be that these people do not really live there on a random, normal random day, and it just happens, so that's why most of the windows there are closed. So machines can find these patterns in lots of data, which humans will have a hard time finding. And I think that's what Bob was pointing yeah. at, the, at the end, and I wanted to like put in some examples of how it is. Uh, possible. They always have a back door these so days. Let's go here and then check shirt, and then you've been waiting very patiently. Thank you. When do you think that you will see computers that are substantially equivalent to a well developed human mind? <laughs> you know, I don't know that it's as far away as we think, right? It wouldn't surprise me if in the next 50 years, we get one that we're at a capability. It may not be to understand a fully comprehensive 
50-year-old adult male, which is what I am. But I, I think we, you know, because we're already getting there, right? And, and there have been some, some, some recent developments that, that show how close we're getting to, to a teenager mindset, for example. I think, I don't know, 50 years, maybe even more. But I think just to point it, put it in perspective, so Paul Allen, uh, who's uh, Microsoft, uh, uh, has started this AI tool called uh, um, uh, Allen Institute of Artificial Intelligence. Uh, and basically their goal is like, for example, in 10 years, machine should be able to solve fifth grade questions. Like, so they'll give fifth grade questions for mathematics, regent and uh, y regents and everything, and the machine should be able to solve exactly those kind of questions. They think it's doable in 10 years. Now, fully, fully grown human, I'm, I'm 50 years as one estimate, I would even say it might be even more. I mean, who knows? But if I see, personally, if I see a fifth grader question answered, like in my in my lifetime, I'll be happy. <laughs> That's I, the philosophy answer. Yeah, I think that you, again, you you have to have some rigor around like what. So okay, so what's the human mind? Um, can a, can a, and when you say mind, are you talking about brain? Would a would a as like the the, the old uh, saw in philosophy, would a brain in a vat have a mind? Is a, is a mind is something that arises from the nervous system? Is a mind something that arises from the entire body? Um, people who can't recognize their fingers can't do math. Um, like I, there's lots of really stunning research happening in psychology about how your body is a part of your thinking. So if that holds, do we need to have computers that have bodies in order to approximate the mind? I think that's a useful question. It's a good question. And it probably goes back to the, the question that, that Catherine asked a little bit earlier, which was, you know, is there a limitation given that computers are created by people? Mm. And so, you know, what are we missing to actually reproduce it? But I think, you know, we're going to get to a point where the technology is going to let us map the human brain and what it's doing. Uh, and that's already happening today, right? You know, and, and it's now overlaying that emotional component. And, and then you've got to layer in on top of that the idiosyncrasies that each of us has. Maybe we're autistic. Maybe we're dyslexic. Maybe we're visually impaired. Maybe we're X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. but, and, and that further complicates the problem. But let's call it a quote-unquote normal person, such as normal is. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't. That's right. Yeah. It won't. Because that, that emotional thing is still sitting in there. Yeah, it's like, what's the Myers-Briggs type of the Watson? Yeah. That's what you want. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, actually they are. Very Rain Man. All right. Hi. Uh, this is interesting, according to your London thing. Um, <laughs> Ouch. Oh, God, I guess now, I'll just take my. You just take one. Hey, I got, this is you know this is kind of a weird way to wrap it on my end, but the, um, you know, you guys have been talking about the depth of technology, the amount of information, how it can be, domained into certain you know health, psychology, everything ground up. But what's your end game? What is it that you guys are focusing on and achieving on? with developing this kind of technology, all the stuff that you're involved in. What is your, you have a goal. You're shooting for something. Philosopher, brainy guy, you. Um, <laughs> what is it that you're, what is it that, I mean, you know, 
Yeah, I see. I saw you like researching something in your glasses. It goes in, information, information out. What's your end game? And that's really my question. I mean, is a computer, what we're living, the way we're living, are they capable of uh, original idea? Who wants to start? Oh, Pick your poison. I, I Let's start with the philosopher. Uh, <laughs> are there any Evernote users in the room? So I think Evernote is a great example. Um, I don't personally use it. I have a moleskin. Um, Such a millennial. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I live in Brooklyn too. Um, <laughs> pause for laughter. Um, so I think that if you, if you can sort of discern, like, okay, what's the problem set? We've been talking about problem sets. Is this a good job for the computer? I'm not going to say if it's the computer's mind. Um, or is this, uh, is this strictly a, the, a work of data? Or is this a work of emotion or wisdom? And so if I'm trying to remember something, it's good to go into the Evernote. Or uh, last night, my brother and I saw Sebastian Thrun's uh, talk. And he was like, well, eventually, the, the glass will be on all the time, and that will be your memory. Because our memories are really lossy, to again use the computational metaphor. Yep. But our ability to ask questions, our ability to see beauty, our ability to fall in love, are uniquely human, right? And so I think if you, although, of course, like the eHarmony uh, marriage success rate versus the standard US marriage success rate is like that, so I know that's a different panel. Um, <laughs> but I think, have, I think there, there's going to be a skill, and I write a lot about the workplace. Um, I think one of the skills that we're all building right now is, whether you know it or not, it's like, okay, is this a question that Google can give me an immediate answer to? Is this something that I'm taking notes on? Or is this something that I need to withdraw and reflect upon? So what is my end game? Um, so I think at some point of time, someone asked me, like, what are the three questions you would like to solve before you retire? And, I told him that I'm very far from retiring. Please don't ask me this question. Um, but so, I mean, personal, at personal level, my end game, as I said, would be if I can make a machine which can be like a 10-year-old, 5-year-old. I don't want to have, make a machine which, is, which can do simple things. Like uh, it, it knows simple facts. It, knows, it can even generalize simple things. For example, round things will roll. So now I can use any round thing as a wheel on a, on a vehicle. This, this very simple reasoning, these very simple facts, and it can all imbibe itself, it can all learn itself from the world. Basically, have make a five-year-old or 10-year-old machine, uh, like a kid. I think that would be, at a personal level, that would be the thing. But that said, I think for people like, some of the people like us, I mean, I think one of the thing is, again, it goes back to the first question, like, how is human brain and computer brain? We are actually doing a lot of these problems to just understand human cognition. I mean, like we kind of map our things to human cognition because we want to have things which are very similar. We want to create a computer which thinks similarly to humans so that it can, re it can coexist with humans. And I think this mystery of human brain, human cognition, I think it really, really fascinates us. And, then and it fascinates us so much that we want to really, but the biggest problem with human brain has been like, how do you measure whether what you are thinking is right or not? And my way of doing it is basically I would put that into algorithm, see if it works nicely. If it works nicely, then that, that is a possibility that human brain might be doing. So this is just a side stone like, as well I mean, to understand this fascination of human brain and how does human brain think and work. I'm going to give you a, a two-part answer. So the technology guy in me builds things for, for people that want to continuously consume information, right? 
because we're all hyper-connected. The first thing probably every single one of you did when you woke up today is you looked at your phone and you sent an email, you did something, you looked at your calendar, whatever. That is the reality that we live in. There is no such thing as work-life balance. We live in a work-life blur. And because of that, we're going to have all these screens around us. They're going to be on our smartwatches, Google Glass, our computers, our iPads, our cars, our backseats of airplanes. Every one of these are opportunities for us to become smarter, more effective, more rational as human beings, to where that information, some of which we'll go and ask for, because we'll have the right sort of input user experience to ask for things, like on a computer. Other times, there's going to be an anticipatory or a zero query search, meaning things are going to be pushed at me on the basis of context, knowing time of day, what device I can interact, what I want in that moment of immediacy. So technology is going to solve all these incredibly wonderful things. Now I'm going to tell you the second part. The second part is, with all this really, really cool stuff that technology is going to do, it's also going to be to draw a line in the sand and say, don't forget about this other stuff. Don't forget about the need for serendipity. Don't forget about the need to step up and look around. And don't get lost in thinking technology is going to solve your every last problem. And once in a while, it's okay to put your damn phone down and not use it and go enjoy the beauty that's out there. Well, according to my watch, uh, that is all the time we have. And that's a great way to end. Uh, I want to thank you all for all your questions um, and thank our panelists.